welcome to episode 52 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. This is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flicks, and we are broadcasting from James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans, just outside Bayou St. John. What have you been watching with lately, James? Well, two things that really pop out is I finally saw Annihilation, which is amazing. I texted you, like, opening night after I'd seen it, like, almost kind of mad that you hadn't seen it yet. <laughs> right. I was like, James needs to see this immediately. It was so in my wheelhouse that I, I loved it. Yeah. And I also saw Death Wish, the new Eli Roth uh, remake of the Charles Bronson classic. I don't... Is it considered a classic? I don't know. It might It might be a cult classic. Cult classic, yeah. I never much liked the um, Charles Bronson series. It's very nasty in this, like, conservative power fantasy kind of way. Well, and so... Truth be told, I actually found the new Death Wish to be pretty enjoyable. I thought his politics were pretty shitty, obviously, and it could have been a little more satire. It really wasn't. It just kind of played it, played it straight, glorifying the vigilante and all that. But honestly, like Bruce Willis does kind of phone it in the whole movie, but it's a perfectly fine action movie if you can get past its shitty politics. The vibe I got is they were trying to use uh, Sway, the uh, radio DJ host, to um, sort of like soften the politics where he's like, maybe this guy's not so bad or something. It tries to play it both ways, like having this dialogue, but really the whole movie glorifies him. So that just seems added in to keep it a little more PC. I get the feeling that for Eli Roth, like Bruce Willis's character is a hero. So that just felt like kind of fake like they're just throwing that in yeah, it looks like it came in after the movie was made or something they're like oh this is kind of gross maybe we should backpedal a little bit it's weird because his directing is fine mm-hmm. but he hasn't really ever made a good movie besides i did like that keanu reeves what was that it's called one? knock 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 yeah i like that, that movie a lot it's so dumb and so gross but keanu reeves gives like a nick cage type performance in that film that's like so fun to watch yeah like, chocolate with sprinkles, <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> the line deliveries are so ridiculous. Yeah, so he he has like good work in him, but I guess at the end of the day, it's like, why do we need a remake of Death Wish in 2018? Like, and from what I've heard, they keep pushing back the date because it's like it's never good time to release it in mm-hmm. America because it's like always a mass shooting right around the corner. And the fact that it came out like a couple weeks after that Parkland shooting, it just seemed really like ill conceived you know this like white guy just kind of running around shooting uh criminals with like this minorities yeah yeah a little a little nasty yeah but all that said it was uh slightly enjoyable it's got it's kind of cool to see like an exploitation style film with like a big budget sometimes and the the action scenes and everything were were really good so yeah i enjoyed it take it you were a bigger fan of annihilation oh i mean we could we could have a whole episode on <laughs> talking about the ins and outs of that movie, but... We kind of did already. We talked about Stalker last year. Mm-hmm. This is basically just Stalker with better monsters. <laughs> and uh, a really ridiculous, like, 2001-style closing 20 minutes that just, like, explodes the whole concept. I mean, that that final 20 minutes, just... I don't know if I've ever seen anything yeah. quite like that. It was really amazing. Did you see the Alex Garland... Um, Rumors that came out after Annihilation started making it big. He's been screenwriting for a long time, right? Right. Uh, but his first directorial movie was Ex Machina, mm-hmm. uh, which, I mean, I loved 
a lot. Annihilation, I'd say, is at least on par, if not better than that film. And someone from the set of Dread, which he wrote, uh, that Dread 3D movie with Carl Urban, said that he actually directed that film as well and was just uncredited. Which is funny because I liked Dread a lot. I want to say that was my favorite movie I saw in the theater all that year. I was watching less movies at the time. Back then, I used to get my new movies from, like, Blockbuster 4 for 20 sales, so I was yeah. always, like, a year or two behind a little everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, me, and our buddy Ronnie went to the theater for that one, and I went in completely blind, expecting, like, a shitty action film, maybe, like, a Death Wish-style pleasure, and it's not like that at all. It's, like, a really, like, slickly directed, fun sci-fi thriller. So I'm just curious what he does next. It seemed like Annihilation, he obviously had, like, a bigger budget to work with, and instead of playing it safe like some directors might he just went all out i can imagine that the book would be very hard to turn into a movie apparently he disregarded a lot of the book yeah Uh, (laughs) that's what i've heard from my friend that's actually read it but i think he's kept a lot of the themes intact yeah when boomer reviewed annihilation for swamp flicks he basically just did a really lengthy rundown of like why it's different from the book and he basically said that the movie is like an A-plus sci-fi movie and a D-plus book adaptation. It has no regard for, like, keeping the source material uh, intact at all, which I don't care about at all. I don't, I yeah. don't care about that either. That was like uh, Jonathan Glazer with uh, Under the Skin completely disregarded, like, 90% of that book and just made a cool movie out of, like, a nugget of an well, idea. Well, because what, what makes a good movie is different than what makes a good book, so... Sometimes doing a straightforward adaptation isn't the way to go. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get more into Annihilation at the very least uh, at the end of the year when we do our top films of the year, because I can't imagine there will be that many more films that are that good this year. It that was, mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah I mean, stellar. It's, it's the best thing I've seen this year so far. It's it's up there for me as well. So what, what have you been watching? A lot, because it's been a busy couple weeks, but the main two I want to talk about are kind of like smaller films. Mm-hmm. One has actually stuck around a little longer than I expected it to because it's not getting a lot of attention. It's called Thoroughbreds. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. I saw a trailer for that. It stars Anya Taylor-Joy from The Witch and Split, and this is like another like knock-it-out-of-the-park performance from her. She's so fucking good in this. Her and this other actor, Olivia Wilde, are... These sort of like rich girls who used to be like, you know, horse girls when they were like younger. Mm-hmm. And now they're, um, you know, about to graduate high school, living in these like mansions in Connecticut and struggling with keeping their like uh, public reputations intact because they both struggle with empathy for other people. Mm-hmm. One of them is like a full blown sociopath. And then Anya Taylor Joy's character is more just like this girl who's used to getting everything she wants. And her like, kind of public life is falling apart, and she cannot handle that at all. Mm-hmm. And basically uses her wealth and privilege to bend people to her will to like fix things that she doesn't like about her life, which eventually evolves into this like murder plot. She wants to kill her stepfather, not because he's done anything wrong. It's not like he's like abusing her in any way. He's just a dick, and she doesn't like him, so she wants to blackmail people into killing him. So is this like a a thriller or a dark comedy? Both. Okay. Uh, it's got a very dialogue-heavy style of a thriller. Uh, the guy who directed, he's a first-time director, but he was a playwright before he started directing films, which is something I kind of inherently knew before I Googled it, mm-hmm. uh, because it's just such a talky film. It's mostly like the two of them bouncing off of each other, and it's kind of this like darkly humorous character study for, for both characters. 
I was the only person in the theater laughing. It's a very tense film. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Ingrid Goes West from last year with Aubrey Plaza. It's got the same similar thing where like it kind of works as a thriller by itself, but then there's this whole other layer of like Heather's style dark mm-hmm. humor about like teen sociopathy. Uh, it kind of also reminded me of Heavenly Creatures, like that intense female friendship yeah. uh, dynamic, sort of leading to these like murderous impulses. It's a really fun, tense film, and it also features one of the last like significant on-screen roles we'll see from Anton Yelchin, who died, like, pretty shortly after the film wrapped, and it actually even says, like, in memoriam to him in the, uh, before the final credits. He's, um, main actor from Green Room? Yeah. Right. Okay. He's really good, and he's really good in this. He plays, like, a greasy, working-class, like, schmuck who, like, deals drugs to teenagers even though he's in his early 30s, and, like, leeches off of this rich kid world from the periphery, and then, of course, these two wealthy girls who need someone to commit a crime try to, like, force him into doing it because his life has less value than theirs. Uh, so there's a lot of, like, class politics humor in there as well. Uh, yeah. It re- reminded me a lot of this novel I read in college called Fierce People, which is this, like, anthropological study of, like, rich people's, like, nastier impulses. Mm-hmm. And Anton Yelchin was actually in a movie adaptation of that film as well, which I've never seen, but uh, it was just funny to me that he was... I, I looked him up after the fact, like, what, what other, like, starring roles has he been in? And he was in a movie version of Fierce People, which kind of surprised me. Oh, that sounds really good. I'm going to have to check it out while it's still in the theaters. Yeah, it just got picked up in Broad this week, so it's at least going to be around for another week. And it's honestly worth seeing just because Anya Taylor-Joy is, like, so exciting to watch. She reminds me of, like, kind of gothy actresses I liked a lot as a kid. Like, like uh... Christina Ricci and... Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder, yeah. Feruza Balk. I like that a lot. And the other movie I want to single out is actually an older release that someone had pointed to me is on Amazon Prime right now. It's from 1997, and it's called Isle of Lesbos. Isle of Lesbos, okay. It's a musical that is supposedly a mashup of Rocky Horror in Oklahoma, but it feels more like uh, John Waters' Desperate Living and Wizard of Oz. What? <laughs> it's this really Sounds so weird, deeply offensive, politically angry, and like super queer musical uh, from the mid '90s, with all these like hand painted sets and just like weird like punks like in the background. And the basic concept of it is this woman is in Bumfuck, Arkansas, is the name of the town, and she's being driven to the altar to marry this guy she has no sexual interest in, and. Instead of going through with it, she runs back home and kills herself in front of her makeup mirror. And when she dies, she travels through the mirror to this magical island where all the lesbians who've been persecuted over the years, you know, either executed or beaten up or driven to suicide themselves, live in this, like, sort of, like, queer utopia. They just sing all these songs about, like, how Arkansas ain't the place to sit on a pretty face. Or, like, (laughs) uh, I don't need no man to call my own. The Isle of Lesbos is my home. It's a really fun movie, but it also has this really deeply angry political streak to it about, like, making all these, like, straight white Christians back in Arkansas look like the most racist, fucking hateful, regressive people you've ever seen in your life. Part of the reason it's set in Arkansas is because they throw a lot of jabs at the Clintons in particular, Mm -hmm. which I kind of had to remind myself, like, oh, yeah, that was around the time of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So there's a lot of reason for gay people to be mad at Bill and Hillary at the time. Um, yeah, he was thought to be a champion of gay rights, and then he basically turned his back yeah. on them with the whole don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, I could see the anger from that. And the whole thing reminds me a lot of drag. 
even though it's a lot of cisgendered women in these like over the top costumes, they're doing like a full on drag routine where they're like performing their gender, they're performing their sexuality. Most uncomfortably, a lot of times they're performing their race. So like the Chinese character is like really Chinese in this like kind of gross way. Um, but the whole thing has this sort of like punk drag energy to it. They're always punching up at like Christian hegemony and stuff. And it's just really weird to me that this like musical version of Desperate Living has existed for what, 20 years and I've never heard of it. Yeah, I was about to say this sounds uh, like a Brandon movie for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like it, has, it has that spirit. It's someone that likes going to drag shows and yeah. punk. And... and the director, it's not like you can even like go into this guy's stuff and find more stuff like it. Like He's a well-known guy with like a full Wikipedia page and everything, but he's a war photographer and has all these like awards for like documentaries about like Afghanistan war atrocities. Damn. And then somewhere in the middle of his filmography, there's this, like, queer Technicolor musical about, like, this, like, lesbian utopia um, that he wrote all the lyrics for and came up with the concept himself and everything. It's, like, kind of an auteur project, but it makes no sense within his, like, larger catalog. Although, I mean, I guess if he's a war photographer, that might be where the political anger comes from. And then late in the film, I don't think you can spoil this movie because it's just like a, such a weird indulgence, but late in the film, the uh, bumfuck Arkansas contingent starts like literally bombing the Isle of Lesbos through the mirror. Like they send like this giant nuke. So there's like an anti-war message somewhere buried in there, but it's mostly just like queer politics with a little bit of war sprinkled in. <laughs> um, it definitely makes like Christian married life look like the dimmest, grimmest hell and, like, this, like, queer community that's thrived outside of it. This, like, colorful, vibrant party that just never ends. Uh, I really like this movie a lot. I'll definitely tell my girlfriend about that one. There's a lot of weird genre stuff hanging out on Amazon Prime if you know where to look for it. So it's not even really that out of line for it to be hanging out there. Cool. I'll check that out. Well, today we're going to be talking about a lot of sci-fi movies, which, other than Annihilation just now, we were not talking about anything along those lines. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but there's a new sci-fi film from Steven Spielberg coming out soon. Which has gotten some really good reviews, which is interesting. Really uh, strong backlash upon the initial trailers and the uh, just the idea of adapting this book that's supposed to be really gross mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, stuck in nostalgia. And then... The initial reviews out of South by Southwest were actually really strong, so who knows what to expect from that. Yeah, I, I'm definitely interested. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about a lot of Spielberg sci-fi type genre films today. Maybe Redder Player One will be as good as some of these, I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it might be a fun watch anyway. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. I work for an organization whose primary purpose is not space travel. It's reshaping wrongdoings. We use Space Corp, among others, as a means of finding people who are special. They're what you might call a recruitment agency. I don't understand. A recruitment agency for what? For people with exceptional abilities. People like yourself. People without families, without husbands and wives, children. No past. No ties to the future. And now it's time for our regular Movie the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Uh, This is a movie I had as my number one when we were voting for our top ten time travel movies. Yeah, which is weird because I did not see this one at the time. Right. I think that's the reason I didn't make the episode is because I was the only one who had seen it. I think 
I'd have to go back and look the list, but I think this one might have cracked my top five for right. sure. We don't do top tens anymore, like because those days were a little overwhelming <laughs> back when we used to. Like, yeah, it gets to be a bit much. Yeah, but that episode was um, it was our tenth episode. I think we did a pretty good job of like running down those films. I thought the films we picked were really good, but I still think this one was better than a lot of the ones we talked about. Uh, it's called Predestination. Uh, it was released in America in 2015, and it stars Ethan Hawke and Sarah Snook as like the main two characters. Ethan Hawke just has a great choice of sci-fi films. What else was he in? Like Gattaca. Oh, yeah. Which is really amazing. I don't know. He just like... I've always liked Ethan Hawke as an actor. Uh, this movie's directed by the Spirig Brothers, who do these sort of like low-budget genre films. I guess mid-budget genre films uh, by today's standards. In a way that's like more interesting than you would expect. So like Daybreakers was their vampire movie. Uh, they recently did a haunted house gothic horror movie called Winchester with Helen Mirren. Oh, did you see that? Was it any good? It's okay. It's... I like the story behind the like actual true life story. I, I'm skeptical that they could turn it into a effective film, but... It's fine. I didn't dislike it. It was like okay to watch like a gothic horror in the uh, audience. I think I was even more positive than most people just by saying it was like a three star enjoyable yeah. horror flick. You definitely could make a more interesting movie out of that concept, but also we just got Crimson Peak a few years ago that I think was exceptional, and most people didn't think that was that great either, so who knows. Gotcha. This one, uh, Predestination, is their time travel movie. I don't know exactly how much we can talk about plot-wise without spoiling it, because it is a very twisty, plot-driven film. Yeah, I was thinking about that, and I think the first third of the movie... There's something that happens about halfway into the movie... Mm -hmm. One of the twists you're talking about that I feel like you can't spoil. And yeah. definitely the stuff at the end, you can't, we can't <laughs> touch on that. So it will be a little tricky to even talk about why this is so good. And just like saying that, you're already kind of tipping your hat to say like, this is not like the elevated sci-fi of like, you know, Annihilation or Interstellar or these like big like ethereal out there movies. This is like a very traditional thriller. It's so old fashioned that it's, kind of framed like a noir picture. Basically, these people are traveling through time to stop this notorious bomber uh, called the Fizzle Bomber before he commits his crimes. Mm -hmm. So that old-fashioned quality is, like, super deliberate. Like, people are wearing, like, trench coats and fedoras and, like... And the lengthy, like, voiceover mm -hmm. as the two characters are talking and there's, like, flashbacks and... Yeah, and the story is framed as, like, two people talking at a bar. Like, it's just, like, a bartender and a patron... Just like, let me tell you a crazy story. And then when that person's story is finished, like, let me tell you a crazier one. And then the two stories sort of intertwine in ways you wouldn't expect. But yeah, it's got like an old-fashioned, like, sci-fi feel to it. Uh, it is adapted from a Robert Heinlein short story called All You Zombies. And that's the same guy who wrote Starship Troopers. Oh, really? Yeah. Ethan Hawke starts off as a bartender in this film. You know that he's some kind of government agent, but you don't know exactly what he does. Uh, and he's serving drinks to this man played by Sarah Snook in the bar, and you're um, not really sure where their story is going because they're writing these like women's stories for this pulp magazine, and Ethan Hawke obviously knows more than he's letting on, and he's trying to get some kind of like information out of the stranger. It turns out Ethan Hawke is actually recruiting them for this time travel mission to stop the Fizzle Bomber throughout time. And as you get the backstory from the drunk <coughs> at the bar and you get more information from Ethan Hawke about what secret agency he works for, 
the uh, movie becomes this sort of like self-creating paradox, kind of like in Terminator, where like John Connor sends back uh, his best friend to impregnate his mom to create John Connor. Like it's like the self-creating loop that becomes more and more like impossible the more you think about it. And uh, I really like that aspect of the movie. Yeah, like they even say in the movie, it's like the Ouroboros, the snake that's like eating its own tail. Mm-hmm. Like that's a good metaphor for kind of the central plot dynamics of the movie. It's also kind of like Minority Report in that they're they're creating this reality to stop crimes before they happen. What Minority Report would call pre-crime. Yeah, that is the movie that I probably would most compare it to, but it's way less, I guess, philosophical than that one. Like you said, it's much more straightforward, like pulpy, noir kind of deal. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summation. Like I said, pretty much everything while they're at the bar mm-hmm. and then things change and can't really give that away but i think we could talk a little more about gender maybe well because you already i mean you already sort of alluded to it when you said yeah but that, she he tells you that up front or they tell you that up front sarah snook's character who presents herself as a man at first basically reveals up front that they started their life as a woman um and you know references to christine jorgensen who was the famous like sex change case that was um Adapted by Ed Wood into the insane Glenn or Glendo, which is like mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies. Uh, so they kind of frame it in that like 40s, 50s tabloid uh, spectacle kind of thing. But the play with gender gets even stranger from there. I don't want to say much more than that, but it's not like a trans story. It's something much less possible. And um, it's it's a little icky in like a 2010s uh, context, this like story. It almost feels to me like um, like someone's like erotic fiction or something. The uh, the gender change, the way it's written is like so out there in like a impossible way that it feels almost like someone writing like erotic fiction. Yeah, and that, I was a little scared at the beginning <laughs> that it would be a little of- offensive kind yeah. of. But I, I think you're right that it, it takes it so far off the deep end that I think it actually avoids getting into any controversial transgender territory. And I think a lot of that goes to Sarah Snook's performance as well. Like, when she's presenting masculine, she takes it very seriously, and it's like a very stunning difference from when she's presenting femme elsewhere in the film. It's a really great bifurcated performance. Almost unrecognizable, especially Mm -hmm. since I've seen her in other movies, and I didn't even know that was her until I rewatched this. Uh, I was like, oh yeah, that's her from The Dressmaker, or that's her from this or that. She just, like, transforms into this other person. She takes, like, the uh, different gender presentations of the film very seriously in this way I respected. I think she definitely holds the film together. Well, and and Ethan Hawke, too. Like, he's just kind of a solid presence. And, like, and his character has reveals, too, at the end that are really interesting and give him more depth. But um, I think what I really liked about this movie more than any other aspect was I thought the pacing was so good it just felt like it was speeding along like as the movie was going on it was getting more and more ramped up the pace to where like an hour and a half just like flew by and for all these like twists that keep coming there's always like a surprise around the corner to get you like back engaged in the story so it just like was a really fun way to spend an hour and a half and a second thing, too, to talk about the time travel aspect. I really liked the way the time travel worked. And this, like, the device itself, it's so bare bones and simple. It's like a 
just a little box that you put in the date. Yeah. And then there's like a sonic boom. You disappear and then you just are at the the time and place that you put in. Yeah, it's like really super... clean, the boom aspect. You just sort of like disappear and then reappear in a different time. And what's left behind is like the sort of like the glass windows around you explode out. Yeah. But that's about it. Like there's a kind of a force, but it's not very like CG heavy or anything. Because I feel like a movie on this budget easily could have looked really cheesy with like you know, waves or vibrations or something. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Other movies would have added a lot of extra stuff in there, but this kept it, I guess, because of budgetary reasons. It's like very bare bones and simple and clean, and I I really like that. Yeah, it relies heavily on the story more than any kind of like visual effects. To the story. The story is batshit awesome. <laughs> uh, and I think like that's what I'll remember. It's just like how crazy this story is mm-hmm. man it's it's so out there and yeah. weird and it does bring up some kind of like interesting ethical questions ethical que- yeah but again like don't want to reveal too much <laughs> uh, i also like you know you were talking about the time machine just being like a simple box um it's carried around in this like violin case mm-hmm. uh which to me reminded me of like gangsters from like booze runner movies like, I'm thinking maybe, like, some like it hot or something. Mm-hmm. Or, like, they carry around their guns in these, like, musical instruments cases. Wasn't the, the other comedy um, that they remade, the Coen Brothers remade? Lady The Lady Killers? Killers. Yeah, they, they do that in that movie as well. Mm-hmm. Which had, like, an you know, that old-fashioned uh, mobsters vibe played very well into this, like, old-fashioned storytelling style. And then they also, kind of out of nowhere, mix in this, like, space-age hooey <laughs> from, like, the 50s, too, where these people wear these, like space travel simulation helmets and that feels like really out of place with like the muted mobster look Mm -hmm. but in a way that i thought was like really interesting and not like throwing me off it's a really good mix of you know minority report style sci-fi with like old noir uh aesthetic yeah and and like you were talking about the fact that they write for a pulp magazine Mm. sort of that is kind of the general vibe of this movie is like a pulp story you would have read in the 50s. And it literally was because Heinlein like wrote for right, those like right. publications. I really enjoyed it. And like I said, I think it is one of the better time travel movies I've ever seen. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's definitely the best Spirit Brothers movie out there yet. And I like all their stuff to varying degrees. Except for maybe their Jigsaw prequel was pretty bad. <laughs> that was last year. Oh, they did that? Yeah, I didn't like that. But it's not really their fault. This was like good all around. It was a... Really enjoyable. I, I don't know. Did, did this, like, make a lot of money when it came out? Because I don't even remember it coming out in theaters. Um, like, I don't think it played here. I, I had it on my top films of the year list in mm-hmm. 2015, but it was, like, something I watched on VOD, like, months after it came out. Uh, so I don't think it got a lot of attention. And I think a lot of the gender stuff might ick people out. And I can't speak for you whether or not you're going to find that offensive. But, you know, I think that was some a turnoff for some people, which I get. I get that. I think it is important to the story though Mm -hmm. i don't think it's really being exploitative i think it's just it needs to be there in the story for certain things to (laughs) work out the way they do in like a bizarre erotic fiction kind of way really really bizarre (laughs) yeah maybe it was an iguana it was no iguana maybe a uh you know how they say there are uh, alligators in the sewers? Alligators in the sewers. All we're trying to say is, 
Maybe you just probably imagined it. I couldn't it? have imagined it. Maybe it was a pervert or deformed kid or something. A deformed kid. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. It was nothing like that, penis breath. Elliot, <laughs> sit down. And for our feature conversation, we're joined by my buddy Jeff Culpepper. That's me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is a stand-up comedian and a local bartender and a cool dude who uh, contacted us a couple months ago because he was watching all of Steven Spielberg movies from the beginning till now, uh, which has included two movies in the past like few months yes. because of The Post and uh, Ready Player One. How did that go? It was great. I mean, I, it wasn't like a, a chore. It wasn't a slog. Except for, I mean, there are a few... I mean, I guess I'll just say it right off the bat the two that I absolutely hated, which was 1941. Oh, that's bad. And uh, yeah, and the uh, War of the Worlds, which I I didn't like when I first saw it, and I was like, well, I was I was younger then, maybe I'd like it a little bit more now. And I watched it, and I was like, in the beginning, I was like, okay, this is, the action scenes are cool, it's good special effects, like. And then at the end, I was like, nah, I still don't like it. Like, this is still a bad movie. <laughs> I kind of like that one just because it's so trashy. Yeah. And actually, what we're doing today is we uh, all voted for our favorite Spielberg movies, and we came up with the top five. And James and I's list were very, like, genre-focused. And, like, those trashier, like, sci-fi and horror movies kind of went up to the top because of that. And I think I even had War of the Worlds, like, in my top ten, because mm. <laughs> I'm just, like, drawn to that, like, shittier end of his catalog. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, despite... My focus on comedy in real life, I tend to like gravitate towards more like emotion, like more you know traditionally like like Schindler's List was my number one, which yeah. is trite, but like I, I love that movie. I think you had Color Purple up there too. Yeah, I'm not even sure I ever saw that one. Color Color Purple, I watched once and I was just immediately hooked on it. It was it was amazing. Yeah, I've never seen Danny Glover play a bad guy before either. That was very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that is a different turn, yeah. <laughs> But I think the top five we came up with is a pretty good summation of his career, even without those like dramas attached to them. If not only because we have two movies from the 70s, and then one from like the 80s, and then the 90s, and then uh, one from the 2000s. Yeah. So we're, we've got like a good like career retrospective, even just from doing the sci-fi and horror stuff. Because uh, obviously Spielberg's like been a genre director for his entire career, even though he obviously does like you know more important stuff. Mixed in there as well. So let's just start with his number five on our list. And this was kind of the start of his sci fi career and sort of defined what he would do with that genre over time. Uh, this is Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977. Uh, I had just seen this for the first time a couple months ago. Um, I watched it specifically because I felt like I had to before I voted on like what our favorite movies were. Uh, what, what's y'all's like relation to this movie? What I remember from watching it as a kid was the scene with the mashed potatoes. <laughs> this means something. Yeah. That and then the musical notes towards the end. Those are the two things that are just burned into my memory from watching it. And then, yeah, re-watching it. Yeah, it, it holds up. I really, really enjoy it. I mean, what did you think watching it with a fresh set of eyes? I can't say I fell in love with this movie the way I feel like I should have. Um, and I should say, just kind of in general, I'm not fully in love with Spielberg as a director. Um, I wish he embraced the sort of, like, trashiness of his concepts uh, a little stronger. Uh, what he sort of leans into instead of this is this, like, wide-open, like, childlike awe, which you get a lot of that in Close Encounters, and it's, like, a very good template of the visual language he would bring to sci-fi later. Like, a lot of shots of, you know, car headlights with, like, smoke 
uh, and like people just sort of like staring in open-eyed wonder at these like spaceships with these little aliens that crawl out of it at the end. Like the fake out with the pickup truck where he's in there and you see the lights come up and like, oh, it's aliens already and now it's just another car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like the sort of like light humor of, you know, cops feebly chasing uh, UFOs down the highway as if they're actually <laughs> going to do something uh, versus later in the movie, you know, an alien abduction actually treated fairly seriously with like this kid being abducted through a doggy door while his mom's like screaming trying to hold on to him. Uh, and I think he does a really good mix of that kind of stuff. This movie in general, though, I was more uh, drawn to the parts that actually played into the horror of the scenario, especially with Richard Dreyfuss's character, not only in the early scene where he interacts with the aliens in his car, and you have that kind of, like, trapped in the truck cab moment that you would get later in, like, Jurassic Park, mm. but also just being driven mad by these, like, alien creatures like drawing him to this uh, location where the meetup's gonna be and his wife and children and everyone else around him not really understanding why he's like losing his goddamn mind over this information like that drive of the movie was so compelling to me that when it actually was dropped to just like the awe of watching these spaceships uh, arrive I was like a little less engaged but it's such a great visual piece just in general like all the matte paintings look really great the like I said earlier, the lights and the colors and uh, just seeing these, like, practical effects creatures walking around. Like, all that stuff was really great and obviously, like, inspired a lot of movies that I enjoy a lot, you know? Yeah. What's your relationship with Close Encounters? So, Close Encounters is a movie that I'm pretty sure that I saw when I was a kid. But, right. like, like when I was watching it with, for my marathon, it was, it was basically like watching it for the first time. But there was, like, little, like, oh, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. But what I got from it was kind of and like dur during the parts that were engaging to you which were also engaging to me i i found it to be like kind of mean oh yeah like, yeah like <laughs> at the beginning he's like being like a shit to his kids they're trying to go to the see they, they want to go to the to the fun park but he wants them to go watch pinocchio for the sixth time and he's like he's like well you you, you know you can go to the fun park anytime but this is a classic it's playing in theaters again and his wife is, is who's played by terry gar is very much like a shrew right in that movie and then <laughs> And I don't know if it was his intention to set that up so you wouldn't feel quite so bad that he just completely abandons them. And then and instantly falls in love with another woman. Yes, who is played by Melinda Dillon as the precursor to Winona Ryder in Stranger Things. Oh, weird. Yeah, she, I, I thought about that a lot. She's, she's this, like, this woman who loses her kid and then like descends into madness. And yeah, she has like the wall of uh, color pencil drawings of like the mountain that he yeah. sculpts out of potatoes. Yeah. yeah. I didn't pick up on that. Like I knew about the potato scene going in just from you know knowing about movies and then the potato scene happened and then she had the colored pencil drawings and it, it, it was kind of an interesting reveal because I don't know if I'm stupid or what but I didn't put it together and then when they finally saw the mountain I was like oh that's <laughs> right. what's going on but yeah Richard Dreyfuss was great I watched it after Jaws it's such a different character than Jaws his like you know crazy family man and then it's, it's funny I think there's a scene where he's outside like building the the mountain like out of dirt and debris in the yard and the, the wife is finally just like fed up and she's like leaving and he like doesn't understand. He's like, wait, what, what? And then the That's my favorite scene in the movie where he's just like <laughs> maniacally shoveling dirt into the house. It was, that was just so compelling on like a character level mm. to me that it was like kind of disappointing when that like line of drama is like dropped later. The kids and the wife are gone. This man has spent, you know, I think the, the oldest kid is like 10 years old. So he spent like 10 years of his life building this family and then that's out. But then we get the, the classic Spielberg, and I always fall for it because I love John Williams so much. We get the classic finale with the, like, wham, bam, John Williams music. And then, then you know, I'm, like, smiling, and Bob Balaban's there for some <laughs> reason. And 
And it, it was, it was. I, I enjoyed the ending. I did not enjoy, however, I don't know if the version you saw had this, but there he, he digitally, we'll talk a little bit more about this with a different movie later. Oh, yeah, fuck that. But he, di- <laughs> he digitally fixed some of the things in Close Encounters, and it wasn't as obvious as the other movie. But he also added in a scene, like I think it played during the credits. I watched it on YouTube, and it's terrible, where he's like in the ship. Like, oh, inter- I didn't see that Interacting with the aliens. Yeah, well, you're lucky. I don't like but- that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we might be butting heads a little bit with John Williams as well. Like okay. that, like sort of childlike, like nineteen fifties awe that he does, like so well, kind of grates me sometimes. Kind of a spoiler for this conversation. We're not talking about any Indiana Jones movies because I did not. I don't that, care about those. At this all. is an issue I've had ever since I've known Brandon, and I give him shit a lot about it. <laughs> is that he does not like Indiana Jones. And I, that, that is just a completely foreign concept to me. <laughs> Actually, it comes up in the next movie on the list, too. Um, our number four pick was also a 70s picture. Um, his first, like, big-budget studio film was Jaws. And there's a couple scenes in Jaws where they're on the boat hunting the shark. And I think it's a little bit of a joke, but the John Williams score comes in, and it sounds like Anna Jones all of a sudden. Or like, you know, that... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Jurassic Park. Where it's like this like moment of like triumph and like this like earnest, like awe-inspiring, like, yeah, victory. And it just like hurts my soul. Like, that's just something about it. I, I guess I'm too cynical for it or something. And I think in Jaws it's played for kind of a joke because, uh, you know, after that triumphant moment, the shark is still alive. Yeah, there's, I mean, the there's, day's no, not there's, not the whole, there's only like really one like triumphant moment in that whole movie, and it's at the end. <laughs> Because everybody else just dies. Right. Um, spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in Jaws, like, also John Williams has, like, one of the most iconic, like, horror scores ever with that da 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 That stuff's fucking awesome. Well, so. that that <laughs> piece of score almost, like, because, you know, the famously, and it was because of technical problems, but it ended up being a, a boon to the movie that you didn't see the shark for most of the time. So the score ended up sort of replacing the monster to, <laughs> for me. Like, in the scene where they pull, they pull the guy off the dock... Like you, you all you see is the dock moving, and you hear the score, and right. that's it. So the score is like to me is the, the score is like the monster. Yeah, it's got kind of like a uh, slasher vibe where you're seeing the victims from the shark's point of view. Mm-hmm. So like the camera's eye is like pointed away from the monster, so you kind of have to wait to see the puppet later in the film. Yeah, which you know they blew like most of their budget on building this giant mechanical puppet, so it's kind of like worthwhile for them to save it so they can like get the most effect out of it as possible. I saw this for the first time in my 20s, uh, so I didn't grow up with Jaws, and then last year we did this uh, episode for the podcast last summer where we watched it in the days it chronologically happened, so like in the two weeks from the end of June till July, we watched segments of Jaws every day, how it happened in the movie, so some days it was like 45 seconds, some days it was like 12 minutes, uh, (laughs) which was an insane way to watch the film, but you know, kind of made me slow down and like learn about it as, like, a piece of art in that way. But I always just kind of thought of this as, like, a big-budget Roger Corman movie. It feels like a pretty standard monster film. It just happens to have a bigger budget and, like, wider distribution from this, like, major studio in a way that kind of ruined Roger Corman's, like, whole game. Like, he couldn't (laughs) compete with these studios after that. Hmm. And between this in 75 and Star Wars in 78, like, that entire Roger Corman B-picture market was just ruined by all this like these million dollar projects and just completely reinvented the idea of like a summertime blockbuster and completely changed the industry and i think that's one of spielberg's like biggest uh influences on movies in general is just how we watch these big spectacle films like the marvel movies would be included in there and all kinds of other stuff 
Yeah, and this one sticks out because it seems like one of the times he fully embraced a genre pitcher for like kind of being a little schlocky. And I like that. He doesn't really go for the sentimental, melodramatic stuff in Jaws. It's pretty much like you're saying a straightforward genre pitcher. And I think those are his films that I'm drawn to more than some of the other more sentimental ones. Totally. And, and like the first scene in the movie is like teens at a bonfire smoking weed and drinking and then going skinny dipping and then like immediately getting killed as if it were like a Friday the 13th film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like pretty much straight like slasher mm-hmm. stuff. Except in this case, uh, it's a giant shark. And the puppet does look really good. Like, I, I love the look of this mechanical puppet. Uh, especially when they get into, um, towards the end, where all the uh, other options have been worn out, and they're literally just in a knife fight, like, stabbing it in the face. <laughs> and it still looks really good. That just, yeah, there's that scene where when, uh, when Quint gets killed, he's just try, kind of trying to kick it to death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't gonna work, That buddy. does not work out, no. <laughs> this is a pretty, like, macho film, though, right? Like, it's like three guys on a boat against like an impossible monster trying to save their wives and kids back home except for Richard Dreyfus Richard Dreyfus I didn't realize this until my most recent recent viewing cuz the the characterization is not pressed except for in like one scene that Richard Dreyfus is this like spoiled like rich college boy yeah and they, they like he's talking to Roy Scheider and, and he's like where do you get all this stuff he's like oh it's just mine but yeah, he's like makes a joke he's like well, you get the late show on that thing <laughs> yeah but, it's a little bit of like this kind of elitist guy trying to fit in with blue collar mm-hmm. working class even people Ro- and like be macho like they are and try to prove himself. Even Roy Scheider feels like he's coming from like a big town outside of the small community. Yeah, he and moved he's, from New York or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and they're both treated by Quint as like city boys. Like he feels they're like he makes fun of their soft hands and like Quint is this hard drinking. Um, both at, both on screen and off screen. Well, should yeah. be noted. <laughs> And he's a veteran with, like, these horrific war stories about sharks uh, from World War II. And uh, the movie's about these, like, two city boys, like, getting down to his, like, tough, gritty level uh, as they, like, lose their minds out at sea trying to kill this shark uh, in this, like, sort of Ishmael uh, (laughs) adventure. (laughs) Have y'all grown up with Jaws? Is that something y'all watched a bunch over your life? I I watched it a few times when I was a kid, but more than that, I remember at... Universal Studios. Oh yeah, they had the Jaws ride, <laughs> and that—that's what really like I remember most as a kid was being on that thing and actually seeing the mechanical shark jumping out, and the tour guide shoots a grenade launcher mm-hmm. at it and stuff. And so like that memory is like always tied in Which, with the film. You're lucky that you saw that. I actually just off to the side. I I read this thing called Theme Park Tourist online, and they do like retrospectives on dead mm-hmm. rides because that ride's not there anymore. And they're like, there was like. You had like a like a like a half like a fifty percent chance of actually getting to see that ride actually running like at, uh, completely the way it's supposed to. It had almost as many technical problems as the movie did. Yeah, like oh, over really? the years that it was it was running. Yeah, I think we waited like ten minutes in the middle of the ride for some reason when outside as a kid. Too. Well, it, it famously <laughs> and, and this this story has been like like some people say it's true, some people say it's not, but they that it broke down with Spielberg on it on opening day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if I remember correctly, there's a lot of like choreography kind of like mm. the tour guide has to be in sync with the timing of the shark coming out in the explosion so i could see it technically like having some issues yeah one of the th- interesting things about jaws to me is like the ouroboros of the roger corman like influence so like this is obviously modeled after corman monster movies like you get the kill up front that's like a pretty major scene and then you get increasingly like larger and larger kills and then you actually get to see the monster 
And then at the end, you go for, like, a big, explosive, like, finale. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, a very methodical Corman model. Corman does those things where he, like, he will go back and rip off the movies that he influenced. So, like, (laughs) he produced the Joe Dante movie Piranha, which was obviously, like, a Jaws ripoff. And then later, he'll do this again with uh, Jurassic Park. He did a version called Carnosaur, uh, trying to beat uh, Jurassic Park to the theater with Laura Dern's, like, mom was in the movie. Yes, I actually, (laughs) I watched uh, a YouTube series called Best of the Worst. The Red Letter, you remember it was Red Letter Media, uh-huh. and they did Carnosaur recently, and they like focused a lot on like the the Jaws ripoff aspect of it. Yeah, but they said it was really cute, and the little dinosaur was really cute in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good movie, but it's it's interesting, just like from like a you know cultural context, like mm-hmm. how Corman just like feeds into himself, like he influences these movies that then elevate his art to like a higher budget, but he never makes the leap with them, like he just stays in that like ground level, like yeah. recycling the stuff, um, and then Jaws also influenced all these other films that were like not logical ripoffs of it that just took the exact film Jaws and just replaced it with different monsters. So like you have this movie called Orca that's about a killer whale mm. and the boat in Jaws is called Orca so they're like pretty much winking that directly. Uh, there's this movie called Alligator uh, about this like giant alligator that like comes up from underground in New York and attacks people because he grew up in the sewers there. Uh, <laughs> there's this movie Razorback that's like a giant hog in Australia uh, there's one called... So just picking um, animals at this right. point. Right. <laughs> uh, grizzly is a grizzly bear one that's really fun. And there's also one called, like, The Car that's, like, a... The, the Car. Yeah, it's like Jaws if it was a car. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of like the Die Hard model. Like, oh, just like Jaws, you know, die, Home Alone's Die Hard with a kid. Right, right. You know, like, Jaws, Jaws with a warthog, Jaws with an alligator, Jaws with a worm that's, that goes under the ground. You get Tremors. <laughs> Tremors, classic, yeah. yeah. I feel like those are the movies I grew up with instead of this one. So mm. by the time I saw this, I was like, oh, I've seen this movie before. Just, like... <laughs> With, like, a warthog instead or something. Like, <laughs> Even Jaws is... It's not a ripoff, but it's definitely an evolution of what he used in Duel. Have you guys seen Duel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, Duel is... It's it's just one guy. There's no other victims. And he's just being chased by a faceless truck driver. And that's the whole movie. And it, it's much more, like, self-serious than Jaws. Like, Jaws, he definitely lightened the tone a bit. But, yeah, the, the Duel is really good. It's and really good? Yeah. It is good, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would like to see him do more, like, low-budget exploitation style movies because mm-hmm. like the post last year i think the script was done in like march and the movie was like in the theater in december yeah so he can work quickly and dirtily i think that's sort of what he's known for is being able to stay on like a tight schedule and get stuff out super quick and then turn it into like these insane successes like yeah. <laughs> millions of dollars successes. well yeah his name at this point carries so much weight and then he'll have movies like 1941 that just, like, blows the biggest budget on, like, the most unwatchable crash. I think 19, 1941, that's not, it's not on our list, but I want to say briefly a few things about it. There is one amazing sequence in it, and it's reminiscent of the opening from Temple of Doom from your favorite series. Um, <laughs> but it's, like, a musical number with, like, all these, all these, like, sailors, and it's really good. The rest of the movie is absolute crap. But I think at the time, he was, like, young, and his like he wasn't balanced yet. He, his ego was getting built up, mm-hmm. and he was like, I did Jaws, and I did you know, Close Encounters. I can do a comedy. I can do anything. And, and like, he was like, that, I think that sort of put him in his place it's at like the time. It's like ego check. He's like, yeah. He's like, no, no, you can't. <laughs> so that came out after Jaws and mm, Close yeah. Encounters? I think the one he did after that was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. It's got a bunch of SNL people in it. It's yeah. just, like, painfully unfunny in the way that a lot of, like... 
multi-million dollar comedies are. Like, mm. expensive, like, set-piece comedies are really hard to pull off, I think. But he does have humor in, like, pretty much all of his movies. Yeah. Uh, even stuff like Jaws, like, there's a lot of situational humor in there. Just when he does, like, outright jokes that feel a little corny. Has he made a straightforward comedy since 1941? No. I mean, I don't think so. I guess he kind of learned that's not his uh, <laughs> forte. Yeah. He, he is a, he's, he's getting ready now to uh, to venture out into something he's never done before. He's the musical. He's remaking uh, West Side West Story. Side Story yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. We'll have to wait and see. Well, our number three film goes back to something Jeff mentioned earlier, which is uh, Stranger Things, obviously being like a direct influence from like the Spielberg catalog. This movie, E.T., the extraterrestrial from 1983, pretty much like invented the kids on bikes like thriller genre. I grew up with this one more so than the other films we've talked about so far. Uh, to the point where I pretty much had it memorized. Like yeah. it's like, oh yeah, I remember this scene, I remember this line of dialogue. But I had the misfortune of <laughs> the copy of the film I borrowed from the library was issued in 2005 and had this like awful CG touch up to the puppet of ET and just completely like messed with uh, my enjoyment of the but movie. But I don't understand why like the puppet is really effective. Like why? What did the CGI? I think, I think maybe a certain other famous sci-fi director might have been whispering in somebody's ear <laughs> in this yeah. situation. But and I, I I told uh, Brandon on Facebook that Spielberg actually apologized for that. Really? He was like, yeah, I'm sorry. Because the version that was on Netflix for a while, like for the, the past couple months, it's not there anymore, was the original without the touch-ups. It's weird. Like, the complaint most people have about the touched-up E.T. was that they removed cigarettes from kids' mouths and they, like, replaced guns with walkie-talkies. Yeah. I never heard the complaint that they replaced the physical E.T. puppet with this, like, CGI monstrosity. And most of the shots aren't replaced. Like, the actual, like, just the puppet sitting there is fine. But whenever there's a lot of movement, like if E.T. gets scared or, like, makes a facial expression, that's where they smoothed it out with the CGI. And the Uncanny Valley comes in and you're, you just don't believe what you're seeing. It's just so sacrilegious. Like, I, I never get that physically angry with the film, but I was like, <laughs> it's like vibrating with anger, like, watching this thing just get ruined by someone who can't leave it alone, you know? But yeah, definitely George Lucas... And Steven Spielberg have, like, a career-long friendship that would have affected uh, his decision to do that. <laughs> well, um, didn't Lucas do the same thing with Star Wars? Yeah. yeah. They added all this, like, CG creatures and stuff. And he, I mean, he, he never apologized. He won't even allow Prince of the Originals to be publicly released. Which is, like, a racing history. You can't really judge the movie in its, like, cultural context if it's been, like, touched up, you know? Yeah. Him and Lucas had a bet on the uh, set of Close Encounters because Lucas was, like, worried about whether or not Star Wars was going to flop. Uh, so they both gave each other shares in each other's movies. Uh, I know And obviously Spielberg made a lot more money off of Star Wars than uh, Lucas made off of uh, Close Encounters because of that bet. So it's a uh, tandem career path for both of them. Uh, obviously they also collaborated on the uh, Indiana Jones films as well. And you get that sort of like G. Willikers, like 1950s radio play sci-fi vibe from both of them, which I think is definitely part of E.T., Except for, in the 1950s sci-fi, you would see these alien invasions coming into Earth and sort of terrorizing people, in that uh, sort of like Mars Attacks style. In E.T. and in Close Encounters, the aliens are kind of benign. E.T. himself, or itself, is this child that's left behind by mistake 
by these aliens that are sort of chased off by these menacing government types in the woods. Led by Peter Coyote, whose character is defined by having keys, and if you watch the credits, his name is Keys. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of creepy shots of, like, waist-level... Men in blue jeans. Well, that the the other than the mom, I think it's for like the first two thirds of the movie, you see no adult faces, like not mm-hmm. the teacher, not keys, not anybody. And the movie is the three children in a house, mostly Elliot, who uh, you'll hear his name like over and over again in the film, mm-hmm. relating to this child alien that's left behind. In that the uh, kid is scared and unconfident, and ET is as well. And the two of them sort of like grow as a pair. Uh, to become more confident and more, like, autonomous, ready-for-adult children. What'd y'all think of E.T., revisiting it? It's one of those films where you know it's, like, a classic. Like, it has that reputation. And I don't know why I thought rewatching it, like, that would get diminished. Like, I would see it through older eyes and uh, I wouldn't like it as much, but it was exactly the opposite. Like you say, I remembering all the dialogue and the scenes, and by the end, I was just, like, crying. Like, a, yeah. like when E.T., dies it was like i was a kid all over again and then the climax of the movie with the bikes and it's just so perfect and well done the death sequence where elliot and et are kind of dying in tandem is some of the most emotionally traumatic shit i've seen in a kid's movie in my entire life and it kind of points to something i notice spielberg does is like he does like to show things through like a child's eyes like this childlike sense of wonder but he also has no problem putting kids in danger mm-hmm. so he has this weird manipulation with like the children i find it's the same in like jurassic park so yeah jurassic park's a great example also yeah and, and in the movies we've already talked about too like in close encounters the kid gets abducted through the donkey door and then in jaws there's a lot of kids who get killed on the beach <laughs> yeah uh well then there's like a whole scene with with the the son and his friends and jaws they, they like are off in in like the bay or whatever because they think that they're going to be safe there and then Jaws gets in the bay, and like you really, if you've never seen it, you really believe like like one of those kids is about to get taken out. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is like where the uh, Close Encounters like style really starts paying off for him. Like all the matte paintings and like spooky lights and stuff, the stuff that like influenced like J.J. Abrams and mm. X Files and Stranger Things. That whole aesthetic, this really pays off in this movie in this like really impressive way. That you wouldn't expect for, you know, a movie about a goofy alien hanging out with some kids. And just like Jaws, like, this one influenced a bunch of, like, shittier movies, like Mac and Me and, uh... <laughs> oh, man. We just watched uh, A Gnome Named Norm for this podcast two months ago, and oh, that's definitely E.T. when I was a kid. I haven't seen that movie in a hundred years. Oh, it's bad. It's so, <laughs> it's so bad, dude. It's, it's uh, fascinating, though. <laughs> but yeah, this is a really well-made movie. As aggravated as I might be about it being, like, you know, digitally touched up later. To the point where, like... That is the one that was available at the local library, so that means that like that was in like a pretty wide circulation. Yeah. You can go out now and buy like a special edition like Blu-ray of ET that's all touched up and doesn't have that stuff. But oh, okay, still aggravating. <laughs> but I think that goes to like something that's really great about the movie is the like practical effects. Mm-hmm. I'm always drawn more towards like actual puppets and things like that as opposed to the CGI. The way ET looks in the movie, it like it wouldn't work with. CGI I feel like like he feels like he's actually there and they're interacting with like a real living being as opposed to if they were just in front of like a green screen 
And he's kind of like grotesque, right? Like he's like a little testicle. Or like a, like a little turd or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when you're a kid, you find him adorable. Mm. And the movie um, compares him to Yoda a few times. Uh, speaking well, of George Lucas. That when I rewatched it for my marathon, I hadn't seen it in a few years. And I didn't realize, going back to John Williams, then the scene where they're out with him in the Halloween costume. And they pass by Yoda... And he and he goes home, home. They actually play the Yoda theme from Empire Strikes Back, uh, like, a, like really, a very short bar of it over that. that scene. <laughs> and I feel like uh, the movie opens with like less of a John Williams vibe and more of like John Carpenter. The opening looks a lot like the thing. Uh, okay, it's got like this like the same typeface, like E. T. the extraterrestrial, with this like spooky synth score before the creepy scene in the woods. Mm-hmm. You almost would expect like more of like a creepy horror film than what ends up. Happening. But the end is straight up like. John Williams. Oh, like yeah. That score yeah. adds so much to those final scenes. <laughs> the soaring on the bicycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to watch it now we're all talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, Universal Rides, that bicycle ride was pretty fun, too. It's like Elliot's Adventure or something. You just like, Oh, I, rem- I remember that. You had to give him your name when you were in line, and then when you right. were in, he would like say goodbye to you. Aw. <laughs> I remember everyone would fight over that front seat that had the like actual E.T. in the basket. <laughs> <laughs> So, real quick before we move on, uh, you were talking about like the horror vibe from it. Do you guys know about the, the planned sequel that they had? No. It was, it was called something like E.T. and the Night Stalkers or something like that. What? It was thrown out for very... It was just very pre- preliminarily planned. But it was going to be about like bad E.T.'s that come back to Earth as a result of E.T.'s first trip. To like try to invade, and then ET comes back, and like ET and Elliot like save the world from these bad ETs. And I think at one point Steven Spielberg was just like, "My God, this is stupid. Like we're not doing this." <laughs> I don't. I would actually love to see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it actually sounds right up my alley. It sounds like you could adapt that as like a comic book series pretty easily if if you don't feel like making a movie. Because yeah, like the puppet itself is not very mobile. Like when it moves, it has to kind of like teeter totter yeah. to be able to walk across the floor. Uh, so I'm trying to imagine like an action plot with that puppet like attacking other things. It seems pretty unlikely that it would be successful. Uh, I think I think elements of uh, what he had planned for that kind of made their way into Poltergeist. Actually, I think I read that. Somewhere. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should say Poltergeist, not directed by Spielberg. Well, <laughs> as the rumor I, might suggest, I don't know. <laughs> I included Poltergeist. It was the only movie that I included in my marathon that was not officially directed by him because I thought. Like my whole life that it was, and then I like I went to I was like okay next up Poltergeist and I saw directed by Toby Hooper and I was like wait so I looked it up and there's like conflicting reports right there's rumors about it that, that Spielberg was on set and he wasn't happy with what Toby Hooper was doing so that it's like some people say it's like seventy five percent Spielberg but he there was there may have been a DGA strike at the time or something but like he just he ended up not taking official credit for it before you got here we were actually talking about Alex Garland's recent rumors about. Uh, whether or not he directed Dread. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which uh, is exact same thing as the Poltergeist uh, controversy, but I feel like it's probably more of just like a collaboration. It's like Toby Hooper makes really great films. He even makes really great sci-fi invasion films, so it would be really out of character for him not to be able to handle a production. Yeah. Like, But I, I don't doubt at all that Spielberg had a hand in it. It just seems more like collaborative instead of like one of them did all of it or something. Right, right, right. Yeah. The next movie on our list is another sci-fi film. If James and I had been voting by ourselves, I think this slot would have been AI, artificial intelligence. But because it was the three of us, it ended up being Minority Report from 2002. I it, think AI, was that number one on both of our lists? Okay. Yeah. I like this movie a lot, and I grew up with Minority Report. Like, I saw it in the theater, and I bought it on DVD as soon as it was available, and I watch it more regularly than most of his, like, recent films. This is like a Tom Cruise sci-fi chase film. 
uh, very much in the style of like Blade Runner, also written by uh, Philip K. Dick. And it's a lot like the movie we were talking about earlier in the podcast, Predestination. It's about preventing crimes before they happen. In this case, more of a fantasy element of these almost godlike beings that can see crimes before they're committed, and then building like a RoboCop-style crime prevention system around that. And then Tom Cruise becomes... He goes from being a cop who uses pre-crime to stop criminals to being like a subject of his own pre-crime murder case. Why do you value this one over AI, Jeff? No, well, that's a very good question. <laughs> so I got a lot of shit about from some other people about AI and this the fact that I don't like it as much as I used to because I, I grew up with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so so far as it came out when I was like thirteen or something like that. Right. And I don't know. There's, there's something about AI that feels like pretentious to me, uh, especially the ending. I think the ending kind of killed it for me the last time I watched it. I think they could have just ended it when he was frozen in the ice, and that, like that would have been. Fine. It's it's a great <laughs> film as is, but it would be even better without that epilogue. I think. Yeah, I agree with mm-hmm. that for sure. Uh, but Minority Report for me, I just thought it was really clever. I don't know. It, it's like the way that he sees himself with the pre-crime, and he's like, "Oh, there's no way I could do this." And then the way that they like sort of twist it all around. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I like rolled my eyes. I was like, "Oh, Max von Sydow's the bad guy. Big fucking surprise there." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man's never played a good guy in his life except for Star Wars. For five what, seconds. Was he the good guy in uh, Seventh Seal? Is there a good guy in that movie? <laughs> I don't know if there's there's a, heroes a, and villains. Neutral. Yeah, yeah. Guy <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like I, I was telling y'all before, though, I only I've seen this the one time, and I meant to rewatch it this past week, and I did not. So I don't remember a lot of the intricacies of it, but I just remember that I really, really liked it. Mm-hmm. It's it's also very blurry. I do remember that. Like the camera work is kind of odd in it to me, but that wasn't a detriment to the movie. And if it's a Tom Cruise movie and I like it, that says a lot. <laughs> I think they kind of cover up some of the CGI in the film with like a digital haze. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't have the most up to date version of this. Like the DVD I've had, uh, I've had for a long time. But the version I have at home, it's it's not like super sharp. Uh, they try to kind of like hide the seams of the CGI with like uh, it being a little digitally grainy. Mm-hmm. But I don't mind that at all. I think it like works to the film's benefit. What's your relationship with Minority Report, James? Well, I just want to say one thing briefly about AI. Oh, yeah. Because we're, we're talking about, you know, how um, George Lucas and Spielberg have collaborated a lot. And AI was, I guess you could think of it as kind of a Kubrick and Spielberg collaboration. I think that's why I love that movie so much. Is It's definitely more experimental, more weird. It's like a little uneven. So it feels a lot like a Kubrick film, but with Spielberg's masterful direction. Mm-hmm. And... I don't think it's like a perfect movie in the way that like E.T. and some of the other ones are, but I think it's like his most interesting, and I think that does have a lot to do with Kubrick's influence on it. And if you want to talk about torturing children, like AI is <laughs> yeah. willing to go there in this like really upsetting way. Yeah, it's like probably his darkest film, while still too. being a fairy tale. Like it's still like a pretty traditional like Pinocchio retelling. Um, that just happens to have this really bizarre sci-fi bent to it. I really loved it. I, mean, I just saw that for the first time recently, and I think it instantly became my favorite Spielberg. On just, like, one watch. Yeah, it's just unlike anything else that he's done. But to go to Minority Report, it's just, like, just a badass, like you were saying, clever movie. And the way the, way the plot plays out, it's probably one of the best sci-fi movies of the last 20 years. And maybe the best uh, adaptation of uh, Philip K. Dick, besides like Blade Runner. I like it better than Blade Runner. <laughs> I'm not afraid to say that. <laughs> I, I, 
I think Blade yeah. Runner's more like visually accomplished for sure, but this movie is just like a better, more entertaining. Like, I just saw uh, Blade Runner for the first time like within the past year, mm-hmm. the final cut version, and uh, I said I haven't seen twenty forty nine. Like I, I think I would ra- rather go back and watch Minority Report. Like if you asked me right now, which one I would rather yeah. watch, I would go back to Minority Report before Blade Runner. Yeah, I, I would agree with that too. <laughs> And I think part of it is what we were saying earlier about enjoying Spielberg more when he's willing to get like gross and grimy in like a exploitation film kind of way. Because this movie gets really disgusting. Like uh, the scene, especially with Peter Stormare, uh, oh, plays I about that. Yeah. like a uh, doctor who does this like illegal underground eye operation where he'll like because they identify you by your eyes. Yeah, instead of your fingerprints. So mm. he leaves Tom Cruise alone in this apartment for three days. After re- after replacing his eyeballs and like this just really unnecessary shit. Well, here. Like, he's, well, he's, he's, my favorite part of that he's fucking blind and he's like oh there's a sandwich in the refrigerator and in the refrigerator is like one like really nice sandwich and one that's just like oh, all yeah. rotten and gross right. next to it and of course he like grabs the rotten sandwich and, and then uh, you see him fumbling around for the milk and he misses the nice milk and drinks like this disgusting shit. Yeah. <laughs> I just like how gross the movie's willing to get in those ways and Peter Stamar plays this like. Like classic, like evil scientist character in that scene as well, to the point where he's like literally quacking like a duck just to like torment uh, Tom Cruise. I love that shit so much. You can't go wrong with him ever. I think why it works too, like you were saying about more willing to watch this instead of Blade Runner, mm. is it it does have like a philosophical element to it, and it leads to some interesting philosophical questions. But it's not really tied down in that. It's much more just a mainstream. Like crowd pleaser, yeah, of, of action and, mystery, yeah, and like sci-fi movies, I think tend to not draw as mainstream of an audience. But with Spielberg, he was able to craft a sci-fi movie that is kind of for everyone and doesn't get, like I said, doesn't get tied down in the overly philosophical stuff that some other movies do. Yeah, he's willing to throw in a scene where like a cop on a jetpack uh, accidentally flame broils some burgers <laughs> while they're on the grill. Like, he's willing to be goofy and, like, crowd-pleasing. Yeah, I think that's with Blade Runner. It's very self-serious mm-hmm. and kind of a slog to get through. Speaking of the cops on the jetpacks, I just remember something. There's, like, they're, they make it very clear when the cops come for him. With uh, another side note, the, the actor, I don't even know his name, but he was, like, the go-to, like, bad guy or B actor. He's, like, his assistant cop in that movie. He was the red shirt in Star Trek First Contact that gets killed. He was the bad guy in Ballistics X vs. Sever. Oh, that's going <laughs> but, back. But he uh, he comes with the with the jetpack cops and they surround him and he, he like makes it very clear that he's not going to hurt any of them. He's going to get away from them, but he's not going to hurt any of them. But then I think, he, he, if I, I don't remember exactly what happens, but he gets up to the top of like the fire escape and steals one of them's jetpacks and just throws them off the edge. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that guy's dead. Maybe Medicare <laughs> is better in 2054 than it is now. But, okay, on top of, like, how goofy that is, like, there is a lot of predictive stuff that actually will happen. Like, people on the subway are reading uh, newspapers that are basically, like, what we have as tablets now. The predictive crime technology premise is a lot like the police camera state that we're living in in New Orleans right now, where they actually have a system that predicts where crimes are going to happen based on stuff. There's a couple good recent articles about that. Yeah, I don't know if you're a fan of this show, but it does have elements of, like, a Black Mirror Kind of, I've seen a couple episodes of that show. Yeah, it just the strain of like how technology can create more problems than it solves is definitely like a theme in this as well. 
Yeah, like when he's hiding out, like targeted ads start like blowing his color. Yes, yeah. Uh, and that's something that, you know, we see every single day now. I think I like it more than Black Mirror, though, for the same reason that I like it more than Blade Runner. It's just like more fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Black Mirror, you know, obviously the tone fluctuates a lot. So some episodes are more fun than others, but this isn't like doing your homework, you know? This is like a fun, goofy action film that just has those things weaved into it. And I'm also just a fan of, like, Tom Cruise's genre work. Like, I just saw Oblivion for the first time, which everyone hates, and I fucking loved it. Was that I liked the, War of the Worlds. Uh, no, that's Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, okay. That Edge was really of Tomorrow great, too. awesome. Yeah. yeah. I'm just, like, drawn to these, like, sort of goofy and, sci-fi movies he does. Well, and actually, like, some of his just straight-up action movies, like the Mission Impossible series is really good. Mm, yeah. I just watched all those for the first time, like, two years ago, and I was very impressed. Yeah, uh, it's a really good franchise. Minus maybe the John Woo one, which I thought was garbage. <laughs> I remember hating that one when I was a kid, and I don't, and I've never watched it again since. I don't, I don't know. It's like a new metal rock opera, uh, <laughs> with all the benefits and detriments that it suggests. <laughs> Limp Biscuit is on the soundtrack. <laughs> okay, so our number one Spielberg movie, if you haven't guessed yet, was Jurassic Park from 1993, which. I didn't even really need to fully rewatch because I've seen this movie so many times that I have every second of it memorized. Same. This is the same sort of feel as the uh, Jaws puppet sort of doing Roger Corman on a bigger budget, except this is pushed to such an insane degree that I'm not even sure it's ever been done since. There's a mixture of mediums here, a lot of 90s CGI that you would think would have aged poorly by now, but it really hasn't. And a lot of that is because it's mixed with these gigantic, complex mechanized raptor and uh, T-Rex puppets that they built for this movie that just still blow my mind. Not, not just puppets, but also like like upper puppets, lower body puppets. They've got guys running around with the legs on. I must have watched the making of this movie ten times when I was a kid. And just the amount of different ways that they, they did the dinosaurs, was it, that's in and of itself very interesting. There was like a post floating around recently, I don't know if it was like a Tumblr post or something, where people were like confused why the CGI was so good on this movie. And it was actually just kids misunderstanding that these were like physical objects that yeah. people built by hand. It really is mind-blowing. It's hard to tell sometimes what, what is CGI and what is the actual mechanical puppet. I feel like CGI has gotten so much better in a way, but it, I don't know, it's weird how it's evolved, but it kind of looks more fake or like more glossy. Or There's something about this like 90s cgi aesthetic mixed with the practical effects that like is timeless yeah i think for me with cgi and what maybe is like cgi is now used for everything and i was thinking about this with my recent rewatch of last jedi is that like i can i can do cgi if it's like spaceships or even like nature or stuff like that but using practical puppets which would you know in the newer star wars movie it's practical puppets with a mix of cgi for like facial expressions and things like that like, if you use, like, do something like Transformers, where you have characters constantly interacting with each other mm-hmm. that are CGI, like, that, that, I think, crosses the line. Yeah, I agree. I will say, though, once you get past the spectacle of the CGI in this movie, I don't find it that compelling. You're going through the park, and it's like, this is an amusement park where they brought dinosaurs back to life. I, there's no reason to do a plot rundown of this, but, um... <laughs> and it's kind of like a guided tour of the park, um, and I, I think that's pretty clever, especially in how underwhelming it is at first, like, kind of like just going to the zoo on a hot mm. day where, like, the animals refuse to, like, yeah. display themselves. Yeah. And then about 40 minutes to an hour in is when, like, the horror of the film starts, where, like, the dinosaurs break loose and the T-Rex attacks them in the uh, vehicle and stuff. I think a little bit of that awe does wear off for me after a while, 
where I prefer the super trashy, over-the-top employment of the same tactics in The Lost World. I love uh, The Lost World. People hate this film, but I love Dude, The Lost World. Dude, when they go into the city, yes. man, that is like some awesome shit. Yeah, if the same level of care that went into Jurassic Park was put into that suburban dino invasion in The Lost World, it would be like one of my favorite movies of all time. Well, not to mention that the greatest actor in the history of Earth was promoted to the lead role in Jeff The Lost Goldblum? World. Yes. <laughs> Well, the cast of Jurassic Park is pretty phenomenal. I mean, you have Laura Dern, mm-hmm. Sam Neill, who's incredible. Who was originally supposed to be played by Harrison Ford. What? I, yeah, that was that was the first pick. And then uh, I think Harrison Ford, what I remember reading is that he didn't want to become Spielberg's De Niro. Like, he didn't want to be like known as you know every movie. So, so But Sam Neill was... I, I think I, Sam Neill is a better choice. Yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, the scene where Sam Neill scares a kid with a raptor's claw... Early in the film is like creepier than a lot of the dino attacks. The major like scary set pieces of the movie is the T Rex trapping the kids in the jeep, uh, the T Rex chasing the jeep down the road, and then the raptors trapping the kids in the kitchen. The kitchen scene, yeah. Those are all really great scare scenes. But there's something really just like perversely like sadistic about Sam Neill just like disliking children so much that he'll like threaten to slit their bellies open with the raptors claw. <laughs> and he's just an incredible actor. I mean. His role in Possession, if nothing else, is like one of the greatest like performances. Or uh, Event Horizon. Oh, he's so good in that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, talking about the kids and what sticks out to me, I think, and I would have loved to have seen the actual direction and filming of the scene, is the scene where Lex has like PTSD after they after they go down by the tree and she's like sitting in the pipe just shaking and she can't stop saying he left us. <laughs> and he has to, he basically has to like slap her to get her to pay attention. He like, has to like grab her and shake her to get her to pay attention to him. Uh, I also like how there's no real villains in this movie. Except for a lawyer. Like, so Richard Attenborough plays this, you know, megalomaniac millionaire who built this park just because he could, much to Jeff Goldblum's chagrin. And he's just, like, really into the idea of people being in awe of these dinosaurs existing on Earth again. And he doesn't really think about the ways that that could terribly go wrong. Like, just breeding T-Rexes and raptors in general is, like, such a bad idea. He just wants it to be an affordable... Yeah, like, he's, he he was inspired by a flea circus that he saw when he was a kid. <laughs> and Very the, sweet. And the lawyer is the villain for um, wanting to monetize it and make it so that only rich people can go. And, like, that's where the movie directs all its hate. But there's, there is a scene, and I was going to go into the novel, because I read the novel, like, three times leading up to the movie, because my parents wouldn't let me see it when it first came out. I had to turn 13 first. <laughs> no. Oh, uh, Yeah. <laughs> There is a scene in the film when they're having lunch, the famous, uh, you know, you, when he's banging on, you want to sell it, you want to make a lunchbox out of it. Um, <laughs> but Hammond, like, kind of acknowledges the lawyer. He's the, he's talking about, he's like, we can charge 2000 a day, 10000 a day, and people will pay it. And Hammond kind of laughs, and he's like, yeah. But that was his character in the book. His character in the book, did you, have, you guys read the book? Not since I was in no. like middle school. Yeah. yeah, his character in the book is an asshole. And he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's like, much less, like, paternal. And he ends up getting uh, eaten by... Compsognathids, the little tiny dinosaurs who weren't even in the first movie. And they actually recycled his death in the Lost the World for Peter Stormare. Scene, right? Although, no, the opening scene from Lost World was also the opening scene from the Jurassic Park book. Oh, okay. But they recycled Hammond's death for Peter Stormare in, uh, <laughs> in the Lost World. And then Dr. Henry Wu, who's B.D. Wong's character, who they actually brought back in the most recent one as yeah. like a villainous character. 
uh, he gets eaten by raptors in the first in the book because he's an asshole too. Right. So there were human villains in the book, and I guess Spielberg because of his, you know he's so hopeful and, and he wants everything to be you know happy all the time. He he like removed the human villains except for Dennis Nedder, of course, Wayne Knight. It's hard to hate on uh, Richard Attenborough in general, though. Yeah, he's like, yeah. He's just like instantly a sweetheart, you mm-hmm. know. Even though he directed that movie uh, Magic that we watched with Anthony Hopkins and the the puppet. Oh, I've heard about that movie. I've Dude, never that seen it. It's terrifying. It's creepy as fuck. <laughs> so creepy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how much more y'all want to say about Jurassic Park. Like, well, one thing I wanted to say, just as far as my like love affair with John Williams, was that Jurassic Park was pretty much the reason why. I mean, Star Wars obviously had a huge influence on that, but I remember when Jurassic Park came out. I used to. I was. I remember being in detention in middle school, and I had like a like a tape player that was like this big. And I had like my jacket over it and my hand over it. I was listening to the Jurassic Park soundtrack. I had the score memorized before I ever even saw the movie. So you have that to blame. I mean, the, the first scene with the brontosauruses where they first see the dinosaurs and they're like awestruck mm-hmm. uh, in that, you know, Spielberg tradition where people are just like giving these like wide-eyed reaction shots. That score is like one of the best employments of John Williams' like style, I think. I think another big thing is like you kind of have to put yourself like where you were when you first watched it i mean it's different to watch in like 2018 but just like we were all at the perfect age when this came out like i remember going to see it in the theater and seeing the dinosaurs for the first time and just how mind-blowing it was for like a kid to see that and i think that's ultimately probably why it ended up being our number one like we were just the perfect age you know et probably was that for people a little bit older but i feel like we're just the right demographic for this and it's just like such a nostalgia thing to like watch it again. I don't think you can talk about Spielberg without talking about nostalgia because yeah. he, he does that right. for you know like I said we covered movies from the 70s until now there's at least one major film from each decade that he fills that role for whether it's Indiana Jones or Jaws or uh, E.T. Jurassic Park like there's at least one movie that some kid grew up with I'd be surprised if Somebody didn't have one of those in their like back pocket. And that's pretty amazing yeah. for a director to be able to say that. What are your expectations for Ready Player One since he is like a nostalgic director? I don't know, like well, first of all, I say that I, I wasn't like blue I wasn't blown away by the post. It was a commonly made film. It was obviously like a minor project of his. Uh, but uh, as far as Ready Player One, I, I haven't been like awestruck by the trailers very much so far. Uh, it seems like an interesting concept. I'm sure it'll be... I, I don't, the, I'm not a fan of the lead actor either. I can't even think of his name right now. But, uh, I mean, I like, you know, there's Freddy Krueger. You see the Iron Giant. And apparently apparently there's Star Wars in it now, even though yesterday he said there wasn't. Today he said there was. Um, so I will I will go into it with an open mind. Yeah. And that's about it. Like, I'm, I love how he fluctuates from these, like, period pieces. Like, I was, like Bridge of Spies kind of reminds me of The Post. Bridge of Spies then, was great, though. I, I really like Bridge yeah, of Spies. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Or it's actually Bridge of Spies is really good, but it's just like a competently made mm. dad movie. Yeah, yeah, he like yeah. fluctuates between that and these like childlike wonder. He didn't direct Super Eight, but he he might have been a producer. Producer, that's kind of what I'm expecting for this Ready Player One is sort of going down that path again, and I like when he does that more when he does these other more serious films. I'm liking the uh, Minority Report vibes I'm getting from it. That like kind of grim future. A lot of the early backlash of this comes from the novel being, like, shitty. 
Uh, yeah, I saw that. I, I never read the book, but AV Club had said something about how the novel was bad the other day. But at the same time, like he's adapted bad novels before. Like I don't think Michael Crichton is like the greatest writer of all yeah. time. Uh, and you know, Jaws was a novel that people notoriously don't enjoy. It's like a pulp novel, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so I trust him to be able to adapt a novel into a better, you know, yeah. final product. Also, I don't think the movie is as. I mean, this is sight unseen. I haven't seen it yet, but I don't think it's as. Um, celebratory of nostalgia as people are giving it credit for from the trailers because if you look at the difference between the virtual reality world the characters are in and like the actual world they're living in mm. it looks pretty fucking grim like yeah they're like living in these like just stacked uh yeah it was like trailers, trailers on top of each other, yeah. and they're like escaping the, their shitty lives by like wasting their hours in this like fake universe which is interesting to have spielberg direct that when he's so focused on nostalgia I'd be really interested to see if he kind of subverts that and like uses this film to kind of critique his own style, kind of. Like, that would be interesting to see if those themes are in there. That's like a best case scenario, right? So, Jeff, me and James, I think AI would be our number one film that wasn't like included here that we would have included. Like, what would you say would be in your like top five Spielbergs that like we didn't talk about that today? That we didn't talk about today? Well, definitely Schindler's List, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Color purple. What else? It does feel a little weird to not have Schindler's List on the top five. Yeah. <laughs> when I saw our final top five, I was like, just feels like should have had one serious film like a Color Purple or a Schindler's List on there. But I'm not particularly in love with that movie. I don't with know. The Schindler's List. Yeah. I've, I've only seen it once. I've seen it twice. But both times it's like it's it's like the Blade Runner scenario. Like you have to like be like, okay, I'm going to watch Schindler's List. You're not sitting around your house on the afternoon and be like, oh, Schindler's List on Netflix. I'm just gonna watch that. <laughs> right. You don't <laughs> just casually throw that on. The same like heavy hand and like lack of self awareness that I really like in his like sci fi and horror movies, I think doesn't work for me in his like dramatic pictures. Yeah. It's just as like thickly laid on and like not as subtle as the sci fi stuff. And I think the approach works better when he's working with like genre films, but that's well, obviously like a personal preference. Schindler's List and Color Purple, are, both in particular, are so long and so they, they have such heavy themes. I think by the end, you, like they're like I said, they're so long that you sort of settle into their world. That's how you're looking at my list. Somebody asked me the other day, like, oh, that, I would say the other two would be A Bridge of Spies and Lincoln, just off the top of my head. But like somebody asked me, I told him I was going to be on here the other day, and they're like, what, what were the top ten? That you gave him, and I was like, if I told you right now, it would probably be a different top ten than the one I gave him. Like, it, 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 that's a library that kind of fluctuates. He's got like forty years of like really well-made movies under his belt. Like, it's hard to get. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> it's hard to get too picky. Like, uh, we could have voted differently based on like what movies we had seen more recently. I think any given month. Mm. But these five movies are really strong. I think. Even if I personally would have subbed out The Lost World for Jurassic Park, because it's such <laughs> a fun movie. Yeah. That, actually, we were talking about him adapting uh, novels into films and like making them better. The, the Lost World, which is another one, I, I think I read that one twice before the movie came out. Those two have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Like The, oh, really? the Lost World book, the, other than Ian Malcolm being the lead character, they have nothing to do with each other. There's no San Diego T-Rex attack. Which is the there's best no, part. Yeah. <laughs> there's no uh, gymnastics, uh, no, there's after no, fights. Yeah. <laughs> The school cut you from the team? <laughs> <laughs> so, Jeff, uh, is there any place you want to like direct people to find your stuff? I know you do stand-up sometimes around the city. Well, I do have a, I have a movie review site, but I've only ever written one review on it for The Big <laughs> Sick. Uh, it's called uh, Meatball Vision. Uh, I do stand-up every once in a blue moon still over at Carrollton Station on Wednesday nights for the open mic night. 
Um, and I bartend at St. Cecilia over by the French Market, so if y'all want to come see me over there, it's cool. You can eat. <laughs> I remember you making cocktails when we used to work together that were really good. It's, yeah. It's been a while. It's been a couple of years. So. It's, it's, that's, that's just kind of my job, but I try to do it as best as I can. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I guess we'll come back in a couple of weeks with another episode. I think next time James and I talk in here together, we'll be doing wrestling stuff because WrestleMania is coming to New Orleans. Very exciting. Which is kind of overtaking <laughs> a lot of my other projects because that's yeah. like all I can think about. <laughs> totally. We'll see y'all soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.